What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. We're joined by the incredible Muslim-Palestinian journalist and activist Heba Jamal. After spending much of her life in New York City, Heba is currently based in Germany, where she has been writing about the country's extreme suppression of Palestinian voices, protest, and advocacy work. Her powerful writings have been published in Al Jazeera, Mondo Weiss, 972 Magazine, The New Arab, and Middle East Eye. Heba, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well, but yeah, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this right before recording. I can't, yeah, I, I'm, I'm struggling, so I don't know how you can be holding up and yeah, processing everything that's happening. So I appreciate you just like in the midst of everything, taking some time to talk with me because that's probably the the last thing you (laughs) on your mind right now. (laughs) No, of course. I mean, it's, it's us that are not there physically. Um, the least we could do, I guess, is, is talk as much about it as we can. So, yeah, well, that's, that's so important and so deeply appreciated. And so, so helpful for changing the narrative and, and making sure that other people understand the, the plight of the Palestinian people right now. I guess let's, let's jump right in. We, we don't have a cocktail pairing for today. We'll just be drinking water, which feels appropriate because the people of Palestine are so deprived of all the basic necessities of human life right now that, I don't know, having cocktails felt very trivial and yeah, not appropriate for this one. But but cheers to you with my water. I have a bottle. It's it's uh, I nice. <laughs> I forgot I forgot to get a glass. But yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, so I I wanted to just start by talking about like some of the beginnings of your involvement in activism. So as a teen, you were involved with organizing protests and student walkouts. What drove you to become so politically engaged? Well, this is a, you know, this is an old story. What was interesting during this time when I was a high school student, actually, so I, I grew up, you know, as you said, I'm, you know, I'm Palestinian, but before I've really delved into the Palestinian question, I, in my Palestinian identity, um, I was very much in tune with, you know, my Muslim identity, my Arab identity. And so Living in New York City my whole life, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the education system there, but essentially when you apply, when you go to high school, it's like you're applying to high school. Um, the the process is similar to as if you were applying to college. It's that complicated, wow. and yeah, oh it's it's it stems from you know Mayor Bloomberg's concept of you know the ability to choose where you go to high school. So people don't go to high school near where they live. They could go across the city two hours yeah. away to high school. Anyway, mm-hmm. I went to let's say a predominantly white high school. Um, and I realized at the time that what I was, you know, the education environment that I was in, you know, I had access to um, a computer lab. I had um, access to really great educators and um, a lot of resources within music and tech. And, and my cousins who live 
you know, five minutes away from me, I went to a high school that did not even have a chemistry teacher that was predominantly wow. black and Latino. And both of these high schools were public schools. And so this, this kind of uh, radicalized me at the time to realizing that school segregation and education inequality was like extremely prevalent issues at the time. And um, there is a system systemic exclusion of black and brown kids in in you know specific high schools across the city and i you know started asking the question like why did that happen and it's because there are certain barriers to entry that make education a privilege in new york yeah. and after i graduated there was a new york times article that said that getting into my high school it's called beacon getting into the Be- beacon school was harder than getting into harvard just what? to kind of put oh that God. into perspective. So it's Ooh. gotten, yeah, it's gotten like whiter. It's gotten, you know, um, uh, wealthier in terms of the, the social class of the students that went there. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, it, and this idea and illusion of choice just means choice for some at the end. So this is kind of what made mm-hmm. me really mm-hmm. involved with with student activism, with tackling education inequalities. Um, I had nothing to do with Palestine. But how yeah. I how I realize it now is that throughout, you know, my high school years or um, now, I realized the idea of othering, the idea of mm-hmm. segregation, mm-hmm. of apartheid, um, it has always been an extremely uncomfortable concept to me. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, and, and I think that those years were extremely pivotal to how I've been able to speak on on the issue of um, Palestinian liberation. Yeah, I was definitely noticing that there's such a strong through line there with your outrage and sense of injustice when you see racial segregation happening anywhere. And it's amazing that as a student, you you were able to both recognize that and then start taking action about that. Like, can you say a little bit about what you did there? Well, I, you know, I helped run an organization. I was a youth leader at the time of an organization called Integrate New York City, um, which is still a great organization that tackles, um, you know, school segregation, education equalities in New York. Um, And they've just done amazing things throughout the years. And I've, of course, I've left by now. But um, when I was a student, um, you know, they, you know, they were able to really, really push you know, public policy, but also be able to show up um, through grassroots organizing. Um, One major thing I did when I was a student under, you know, the Trump administration was I I led a, I helped lead a student walkout where like, I guess over like a thousand students from across New York City high schools like walked out. And it was like this like big deal at the time. Um, And so that's, that was also kind of like my start too was, um, you know, talking about the Muslim ban, talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Betsy Davos, the education minister that was appointed at the time. Um, and the idea was, you know, students have a, have a voice and these policies impact young people um, probably even more than the older generation. And so that was, that was my introduction to activism, to, um, you know, everything that I've, that I've been able to do since then. That's amazing. I I love that you got so involved with with political action just so early in your life. It's I, I'm seeing that more and more these days. I feel like people are getting radicalized a lot earlier 
even since I've graduated college and high school, you know, um, but it gives me a lot of hope for the future. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. As a first-generation Palestinian-American, can you tell us about your personal and family background? Anything you'd, you'd be willing to share about that? Yeah, sure. So, so my family was exiled from a village called Qariya Jimzu, a village of Jimzu, um, which is near the Ramla district, would have, which you know is now Israel. Um, they were they were exiled in 1948. Half of my family went to refugee camps in Jericho. Um, you know, the other half were, you know, left immediately to, uh, you know, to Jordan. Some of them did go to Gaza, but then after in 67, um, left to Jordan as well. Um, and then a huge part, you know, went to places in like South America and the United States and New York in particular. And so my family has, you know, been pretty spread out, uh, you know, ever since the Nakba, um, yeah, I mean, of course, the the situation with my husband now is is very very different. They became refugees from the village of Kokaba, um, which is also in in forty eight, you know, Palestine, mm. and became refugees, and and all of them went to Gaza Khan Yunus. So, um, different mm. different family history, but same route. Like you know, we both kind of our families became refugees, um, mm. but you know. Unfortunately for my family, we have not been able um, to return really to yeah. Palestine, except as as you know visitors and nationals from different countries. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I mean, but you were able to to travel to Gaza. Was it last year? You you were finally able to make that trip. So so again, you know, my my family isn't isn't from Gaza. My husband's family is, and and uh-huh. the um, a lot of people don't really understand the you know how it works. But usually, anyone who does not have a Gaza ID cannot enter Gaza. So so yeah. what this means was, of course, like if it was me by myself, I would never be able to enter yeah. um, Gaza. It's not open to regular um, you know tourists. Yeah. Um, but so only people with a, with a Gaza ID are able to enter. I mean, because, um, you know, I'm married, um, and you know, my child is also, um, you know, has a Gaza ID. I was mm-hmm. also, I was able to enter with my family. Um, mm-hmm. so my in-laws were able to go and I was able to go with them. And although the, the way there was excruciating and I don't know if you yeah. want to get into what that looked like in itself, but, um, getting there and finally getting there was the best month of my life I think it was an incredibly beautiful gorgeous um really really happy place I mean there was it's obvious there's hardships there but it was it was you know Palestinian people in Gaza are incredibly happy people um Mm. and and welcoming people and um yeah, and unfortunately, it's basically now all gone. So. Oh my god! Yeah. It must you must have a different appreciation for life when your life is constantly um, being threatened. It, when you are, you know, facing an occupation all the time, it must. I don't know. I you you must have to find some form of hope and some form of joy in the midst of all of that. 
Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the reason why, um, you know, the Palestinian resistance and, and you know, the concept of, of fighting for liberation is so strong, even within the youngest in our society, is our appreciation for life and our and our love mm-hmm. for life. And, and um, you know, fighting occupation is not antithetical to that. It's, it's a part of that. Mm. And it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's... That's so beautiful. And I I loved your recent piece. I, I wish I had it with me right now to quote from it, but um, where you talk about, despite what you may think, Palestinians are not celebrating death. Um, they are celebrating the hope of a better future and and the hope for life you know, um, when they see the changes that are taking place on October 7th. Yeah, I mean... Uh- no, definitely did. The, the thing about um, the, the first images that came out of October 7th was was a fence being, you know, destroyed. The, the same mm-hmm. fence that a few years earlier, Palestinians marched alongside, um, you know, peacefully and were mm. still shot at, still, still, um, you know, still maimed. Over 200 people were killed in the 2008 2018 March of Return. And so the fact that this very fence and, you know, the watchtowers that overlook the fence were destroyed wasn't, was an extraordinary sight for Palestinians. They didn't know what was going on, like inside of, you know, no one knew what was happening at the time. All we saw was a destroyed fence and a destroyed Israeli tank, an extraordinary symbol of the, the actual physical material, um, uh, destruction that has yeah. inflicted so much pain on Palestinians. This yeah. was my point when I when I wrote the piece, and uh, and and yeah, which is why um, you know Palestinians do not condemn militant resistance because of those very very strong symbolic images. Mm-hmm. And we will we'll definitely be talking about that a little more. The the demand to condemn the resistance um, when we talk more about Germany. But yeah, I guess since we are talking now about what it was like in Gaza and then October 7th, so I want to just switch to talking about the ongoing genocide. It's January 4th today, and Israel's bombardment and ethnic cleansing campaign has continued now for three months, including those who are presumed dead under the rubble. The civilian death toll is approaching 30,000. Over two-thirds of structures in northern Gaza have been destroyed, and the entire population of Gaza is facing a famine. I was just hoping maybe you could talk about what is happening in Gaza and what you're hearing from folks who are living through this hell. Um, the situation, calling it dire, is not is not properly explaining it. Um, I don't even know where, where to begin, really. Yeah. Uh I mean, yesterday we, we got word from my husband's aunt who, you know, I've had the pleasure of, of meeting just recently and yeah. loving, um, you know, deeply is, you know, her, her home got destroyed yesterday. So mm-hmm. her whole you know, apartment building was destroyed. Um, thankfully, just a few days ago, they evacuated. Um, but those are, you know, decades of, of memories gone and now they're taking shelter in tents and, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's an ex- extremely, um, saddening situation. I mean, 
uh, yeah, it's there's so much that I, I'm not sure even what to what to what to speak about. Really, I mean, um, yeah, a, a few a few days ago, again, this is an extremely you know personal uh, situation, but um, you know, uh, and and just to kind of put into perspective, like my my family in law are some of the most, uh, you know, beautiful and kind hearted people. Um, mm. and, and knowing that, you know, some of them were, were killed. Um, mm. ones that I've, I just spoke to like not even two weeks ago is, is yeah. an extraordinary loss. Um, just, uh, just a few days ago, we got word that my, um, my husband's uncle, well, they were, t- my husband's uncle's like family, so his cousins, they were all taking shelter in a in a you know, a neighbor's home and an Israeli airstrike uh bombed the home, killed the host family and all their children, killed my uncle's eldest daughter and her three baby children, and then her three younger kids, her three younger siblings, um, aged seventeen, sixteen and like thirteen. So it was it was it, it was extreme shock and um, an extreme loss. And, but this is the thing is, is, you know, you don't really have time to mourn because you realize that every single person has had massacres like this take place in Gaza. Um, yeah. So your trauma and experience are not even unique. It's, it's not, it's not unique. And, and, and for us living in the diaspora and just watching massacres unfold, I mean, his uncle is in the hospital and uh, we also got word a few hours ago that Israeli tanks have now um, circled the Maghazi refugee camp, which means oh that people God. cannot leave or oh enter. So, so it's again like I'm not I'm not even sure what to talk about. The situation on the ground is horrific. Um, it doesn't seem to be getting better. I I told myself a few weeks ago I was like, all right, like what number will they stop at? Will they stop at 10,000? Will they stop at? I said, I gave, I gave it 15,000, which is a terrible way to look at a conflict or look at a war. But I was like, okay, they can't kill more than 15. That's just insane. And now we're beyond those numbers and, and, uh, um, it doesn't seem to be slowing down. So, so yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I know that, you know, this is not even touching on, on so many humanitarian issues that that are taking place from um you know female hygiene to hygiene in general to um you know accounts of children dying of cold i mean oh, god uh, yeah so it it really does seem like a hopeless situation um but I guess keep calling for a ceasefire, although like even that now would not suffice anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we need more. We need liberation. Yeah. I, I deliberately left that question really open because I didn't know what you would want to share, but I appreciate you sharing these personal accounts of, of loss. I think it really, I mean, I know for me, but I know for also our listeners will, help to make the reality even more more real. I mean, you are such a wonderful voice and someone that people can relate to so much. Um, so thank you for being willing to just share and talk about these things. I know they're absolutely some of the most horrific, painful things that you've ever had to probably go through, but um, 
I just appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing it. So I was wondering if you could talk at all about how what we're seeing right now with the just massive devastation fits into the larger agenda of this settler colonial regime of Israel and how this agenda relates to capitalism. You know, the something that I've I've realized um is this the Palestinian genocide, it's not unique. I mean the the scale in which it's happening in such a short amount of time, maybe yeah. maybe that's what makes it so different. But but it, it's not a unique phenomenon. I mean, genocides that have taken place um, yeah, throughout history, um, in recent history, you know, mind you, um, it all has very similar actors, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, again, yeah. it's the same. It's the same thing over and over. We have West, the West backing um, and colonial regimes, settler colonial regimes, backing governments that value monetization over security and and safety of regular people. I mean, we see all these uh, corporations, right? Like, why why is BDS so important to the liberation of Palestinians? Um, why did Palestinians ask the international community to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel? Is because they understand the economic factor that people are benefiting from their oppression, from their occupation, yeah. and from their apartheid. And the West Bank, you have corporations, Israeli corporations, that use their land as dumping sites. People don't really talk about this much, but corporations within Israel use places like the West Bank, use Palestinian land and soil, um, and 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 destroy it for their own economical economic benefit. Um, and yeah. this is this is again this is why um, Palestinians are asking you not to contribute to these companies. They're asking you to boycott McDonald's, asking you to boycott um, you know Coca Cola or or whatever it may be. They're asking you not to participate um, with. Israeli universities that are built on stolen land that have destroyed stolen land that, and that teach people how to destroy, um, you know, Palestinian stolen land. So, so um, capitalism is a, is a huge part of how settler colonialism functions, and it always mm-hmm. has been a huge part of it, regardless of where it is, um, regardless if we're talking about France or regardless if we're talking about Palestine. I mean. I mean why why did Palestinians reject the partition plans the of you know that were that were um, proposed to them? Well, it's because <laughs> Zionist settlers were taking the most profitable, rich places mm. of Palestine and yeah. and leaving us the rest and saying mm-hmm. that this was a fair sort of idea or concept, just like happened here in America with the Native Americans, of course, and and again, like the idea of liberation, the idea of land back and the idea of decolonization is an inherently anti-capitalistic, um, you know, approach. And it won't happen unless you destroy these capitalistic institutions that, you know, pave the way for the, um, for the mutilation of Palestinian body, land, air, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. 
that was so powerful. Cheers, cheers to that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I am getting really parched, actually. <laughs> I bet. I'm oh also god. I'm also nine months pregnant and about to what? pop. Like a oh my god, yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. I, well, again, I'm like very close to the. But yeah, I'm, wow. I'm so I'm. I'm almost there and my mind is, is not <laughs> oh my functioning God. as it should. But um, I can't believe you're yeah. talking to me with so much on your plate right now. It's really, really oh, sweet please. of you, Scott. Of course. I feel like I would be like in a fucking ball in my room, just like curled <laughs> up doing nothing. <laughs> like, Yeah. Well, I also uh, have a toddler, so that isn't oh, 100% possible. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. But he is, he's taking a nap right now, which is why oh, I'm able good. to talk to you. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that worked yeah. out well. Yeah. I've got my dog napping right next to me here. It's not the same, but <laughs> I don't have kids. So, um, that was that was an incredible response. Oh my god! Oh, thank you. <laughs> Holy shit! Diving back into the heaviness of it all, um, you were friends with the incredible Palestinian writer, poet, and professor, and activist Refat Alarir, who was targeted and killed by Israel. Can you talk about this huge loss and how it fits into Israel's pattern of targeting what you've described as the quote the smartest, the brightest, and the most capable in Gaza? Yeah, I so so I I consider Rafat a friend. I don't know if he would consider me his friend, but I I I was so I've always been so inspired by him, and the interactions I've had with him has always left a lasting impact. Um, I've gotten I you know got in touch with Rafat a few years ago because I I really wanted some help on my you know Palestinian fiction writing. I really wow. wanted to yeah I really wanted to to write and and you know, write about Palestine, write about Azib. And I needed, I needed advice. And he was so quick to jump on a, you know, a Skype call with me and, and hear me out and give me advice. And he, he was willing to, to help everyone that, that, you know, that spoke to him. And, mm. um, and just last year when I was in Gaza, he, he, you know, he told me, um, he wanted me to come speak to his students and, and talk to them and, and about, you know, writing and writing in English and, and writing poetry in English. And unfortunately, we never got to do that gathering. And now we will never be able to. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, no, it's incredibly unfortunate because um, Rifat loved his students. He yeah. he he had and the they loved extreme. Him. Yeah, they they loved him so much. He had the extreme you know, unfortune to to witness many of his students, you know, get killed by the Israeli terrorist army um, before he died. So I know that 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 crushed him extremely as well. But even then. Um, the resilience of someone like Rafat um, cannot mm-hmm. be understated. Um, mm-hmm. He, they, they killed him because of how outspoken he was. They called him. Um, you know, his. It, it was, it was reported and accounted that you know the people that were with him a, a night before he was killed, they called him and told him that they were going to kill him, which is why he he left his why he left his wife and children that were taking refuge in a school and went elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and Rifat knew how powerful poetry is and, and how powerful writing is and how powerful that concept of just writing on Twitter, for example, is so threatening to the state of Israel. Um, and, and he kept 
through his lectures, whenever if you am, they're available online, he always told people, don't say that someone was targeted by Israel because in spite of just being a writer. No, they target these people because they're poets, because they're writers, because they're the ones driving the absolute beauty of, of Palestinian resistance and give it give it voice, give it words and and, and document it too. Yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, again, like Israel attacked many municipalities within Gaza and destroyed hundreds of years of documents. This is also for a reason. And and Rafat knew this, and he's not the only one who was killed for his extraordinary work. Um, Israel has a very tactical targeting of people who are successful, people who are brilliant, mm-hmm. people who the people who Israel knows that if they left alive, they could rebuild Gaza quickly, and and they've they've destroyed generations of of brilliance through their targeting campaign. Because, again, these people are what give Palestinians hope when you target doctors, when you target writers, when you target professionals. It it destroys a whole class of people that could teach the younger generation about not just what happened, about how Palestine was and how strong it was and how strong it is. Um, and, And this concept of hope for Israel is what's so threatening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also teaching others to use their voices, which I I know he was doing very, very well. This struck me really, really hard when I heard about that loss. Um, and especially after reading his poem where he's talking about if I should die, and after seeing a video where he's talking about if the occupation soldiers come in here and all I have because I'm an academic is a pen, I will throw that at that at them as my last act of resistance. We know that it's very bleak, it's very dark. Uh, there's no way out. Uh, if, if there's no water, there is no uh, way out of Gaza. What, what should we do? Like drown? Like commit mass suicide? Is this what Israel wants? And we're not going to do that. And I was telling some somebody, some friend the other day that I'm an academic. I probably the toughest thing I have at, at home is an expo marker. But if the Israelis invade, if they charge at us, charge at us, open door to door to massacre us, I'm going to use that marker, throw it at the Israeli soldiers, even if that is the last thing that I would be able to do. And this is the feeling of everybody. We are helpless. We have nothing to lose. Everything in him wanted to resist the occupation, even though he didn't have the ability to do that, you know, and uh, it, it that was just so devastating to hear. And then knowing that he's gone is just it's it's so huge. It's so shattering. Yeah, he, he always said, you know, his his poem, if I must die, let it be a tale. Well, it, it definitely became a tale. And um, yeah. I know I know that, you know, people will be talking about him for for decades Absolutely. Absolutely. He's a legend. So as a Palestinian journalist, I'm wondering if you could share some of your thoughts and feelings about the killing of, I think, 104 journalists so far in such a short amount of time. Um, It may be more than that at this point because they are actively targeting these journalists. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's... 
again, like we, we, we spoke about the concept of, of targeting truth tellers and people mm-hmm. who give a voice to the unheard mm-hmm. and who better does that than yeah. journalists of Gaza. Um, you know, there's, there's been so many accounts of, of, you know, Israeli um, intelligence calling journalists, telling them to stop, telling them to delete their posts, telling them, you know, if you continue, you'll be next. If and and well, I mean, the biggest incident we've seen was the targeting of Wa'il Dahdur's home that killed his children, um, and and you know, uh, an attack that left him injured but killed his cameraman um, a few weeks later. Um, um, Sam Sam his name was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean these, yeah. I, and the thing is, they keep going. Like they, it's not like they stop. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure any. You know, we've seen cases like this time and time again, where their colleagues are brutally murdered in front of them, but they still wear their press vest. They still talk. They still report um, and and ask you to share their content and make sure you're seeing what they're witnessing. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's. I don't know if there's anything left to say than just um, the you know heroes like absolute yeah. absolute heroes um and i know that all of them don't want to be heroes don't want to be seen as heroes they just want to be you know want to do their jobs without the threat of death and threat of the gun and of course that's not possible um forcing them to be heroes mm-hmm. yeah i mean so many people in gaza have been forced to become heroes and we we are lucky enough to see a lot of what some of these journalists are streaming every day, are posting every day from the devastation on the ground, the complete carnage and loss and and sorrow that is happening over there. Um, but these people, every single day, they wake up and they keep doing it after losing people that they love. I think probably all of them have lost people that they love in this. And I don't know how you keep keep doing the work, but maybe that's all you know that you have to do at that point. I, I, I don't know. I don't know the mindset, yeah. but it's it's shockingly heroic. So shifting a little bit to talking about Germany, you've written about how Germany's president and interior minister have called on Germans of Muslim and Arab origin to publicly distance themselves from Hamas. Why is it so wrong to ask Palestinians and other Muslim Arabs to condemn the resistance? Yeah, um, Germany has time and time again demanded the you know immigrant my you know immigrant migrant Arab Palestinian um, foreigner like they call them Ausland the foreigner communities to publicly distance themselves and they say with you know with no buts you know with no clarification with no explanation yeah. um, this is what you know Interior Minister. Nancy Fraser, I believe her name is, has said alongside the German president. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's racist. It's Islamophobic. Yeah. It's anti-Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also extremely hypocritical. I mean, uh, I, I wrote about this for, you know, the new Arab about why I personally refuse to condemn and why many, many others refuse to condemn because the politics of condemnation looks at, you know, 
looks at what they want to perceive as a potential threat to make sure that they don't become a threat. Mm-hmm. And this is something that extremely is an extremely dehumanizing concept and idea. Um, and I don't see I don't see Germany going to Jewish communities and, and asking them to condemn the complete murder of over 25,000 innocent Palestinian civilians. Um, you don't see them going to, you know, religious institutions, Jewish religious institutions and asking them to condemn um, the terroristic actions of the Israeli state because it's yeah. anti-Semitic, because it's, it's, it's racist, because it's, it's, it, it, it ties people automatically and politicizes their identities. Um, even when, there's absolutely no reason to, you know, uh, the Palestinian identity has been politicized for, for decades in Germany. Um, and anti-Palestinian suppression is not just happening right now. It's, it's embedded within German culture and institutions and structure. Um, and so, and so it's of course not surprising that they ask Palestinians to condemn, but it needs to be reiterated that no, we shouldn't condemn because again, it's an extremely racist concept for you to ask us to condemn, especially, mm-hmm. especially considering that um, over 82% of anti-Semitic incidents that take place in Germany um, are from far right neo-Nazis. But the concept that they've created is this idea of imported anti-Semitism where migrants come into the country and the new anti-Semitism that Germany is facing are from these you know, angry, they call them, you know, angry Araba, like angry Arabs. Um, so, so they want to exalt themselves from their historic past. Um, and they throw, you know, whole migrant communities under the bus um, and demand them to either, you know, assimilate the way that they want to or get out, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it is just another form of racial profiling and 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 projecting this kind of suspicion onto an entire population, um, an entire racial group, which is just insane, so wrong. Um you had a really great quote, I think, from the same article that you were referencing, um, Germany's weaponization of anti-Semitism to target migrants and Arabs is what must be condemned. Is that the same one that you were talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um you wrote Palestinians refuse to condemn and be subjected to a viciously racist discourse that places our respective communities as suspect. I refuse to condemn because we are not pawns in political ambitions that are focused on offsetting Germany's historical responsibility towards Jewish people onto the Palestinian population. What a powerful, amazing way to sum that up. Like, so that was really, really incredible when I read that. Like, it ties into a question that I'm going to be asking you in a second here. But first, I wanted to ask you about so much of your work as a journalist has focused on Germany's extreme suppression of pro-Palestine speech, protest, and solidarity work. I was hoping you could help listeners understand kind of the scope of this oppression and how it has increased since October 7th. Yeah. So, so I've been documenting anti-Palestinian repression in Germany for the last few years you know, ever since I, you know, I met my husband, I moved here and um, have lived here. Um, And I did not anticipate exactly how horrific Germany's response to this war would be. Mm. Um, I always knew that, of course, they'd ban some demonstrations, of course, they'd make a clear, you know, cut support to Israel. But what's happening now 
is is something extremely i think you know horrible but also interesting is that they are using the genocide of the palestinians are using the war to advance their anti-migrant rhetoric mm. oh, and wow. and and it's it's truly phenomenal because the you know um olaf schultz the you know, the chancellor, uh, signed a historic anti-migration bill just, you know, in November. Right. And, and he said, and he said, this is essentially in response, he gave an interview saying, you know, um, you know, that he, uh, that, that we have a migrant crisis as a response to a journalist asking him about what he thinks about all these protests on the streets. Right. Because Germany has been banning demonstration after demonstration after demonstration. They have been banning slogans such as stop the genocide. And of course they've made illegal to say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And when they realize that they can't, physically stop people from protesting because it's against every international human rights law um they switch their switch their tone right so instead of instead of banning demonstrations of course they still arrest people there's still police brutality etc cetera, etc cetera. but what happens now is that you know the reason we have these protests is, is not because you know people disagree with their government um, and people are practicing their freedom of speech. No, it's because we have too many illegal migrants, too many refugees, too many asylum seekers, and we have to, uh, you know, we have to tackle, you know, Germany's migration policies. And so what ended up happening is is Olaf Scholz signing an anti-migration bill, which, uh, you know, which extremely dials back uh, social benefits for refugees. It tries to create asylum centers outside of Germany. So people seeking mm. asylum can't come to Germany. They have to go to an asylum center and, you know, somewhere like Albania was the proposed location. Mm. Um, and, and some politicians want to take it a step further and do what the UK does, which is uh, make deals with, uh, you know, other African countries, mm-hmm. um, because sometimes refugees they can't go back to the place of origin because the country won't accept them. Yeah. Um, you know, such as you know Lebanon, for example, and mm. so or Syria. And so their response is, oh, let's send them to you know uh, an, an African country that we could you know give uh, you know compensation towards to accept these unwanted you know refugees and asylum seekers. Mm. So so this is just. The, the the extent and this is of course has has is completely separate separate from the media but what's taking place within the media in Germany which is pushing extreme like total Israeli propaganda um, you know Palestinian protesters are are now um, pro Hamas demonstrations um, yeah. they are categorized as pro Hamas demonstrations um, the concept of a ceasefire is completely omitted from the conversation instead um, it just shows you know, it, it just completely depicts people as, you know, supporting terrorism and destruction um, and failing to give any light to a Palestinian perspective um, unless there, you know, there's only a few examples of, of you know, journalists interviewing um, extreme victims, like extreme, like, you know, the um, victims who, who, you know, have essentially lost everything and, 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 Hmm. you know, don't say anything political, um, within Hmm. the universities, Hmm. we've had incidences where, uh, a German university 
their own student was killed in Gaza and refusing to allow a vigil to take place in their honor because oh <laughs> fearing it becomes too political and that becomes anti-Semitic. Oh weaponization of The weaponization of anti-Semitism in this country mm-hmm. has taken extreme forms um, where basic, basic rights to freedom of speech are, are threatened. Um, and uh, and every every German institution is completely complicit in that regard. Um, there has been almost zero calls for a cease from a for a ceasefire by any German politician. Um, and still to this day, um, you know, siding with the Palestinian people, calling it a genocide, are are seen as um, you know are, are seen as codes for the destruction of the state of Israel. Um, yeah. And and um, I mean, I could I could keep talking about this, but one of the major reasons that they have such a strong stance is, of course, their their memory culture and and categorizing mm-hmm. Israel's national security as their reason of state. Um, and uh, and and this has led to uh, you know this has led to states such as you know Saxony to say that if you want to have German citizenship you have to recognize Israel's right to exist. And I can't give you an, I can't give you a, a example of a country saying that, you know, we'll give you citizenship if you identify and, um, you know, respect the right of another country thousands of miles away to exist. I mean, it's, you have to pass this loyalty test first. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. And it's an Israeli loyalty test in order to, um, in order to, um, have German citizenship. Um, and I could talk so much more about this, but I'll, I'll just leave it there um, and urge people to, to learn more about what's going on in Germany. Um, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I maybe I'll just read just a couple of facts that I learned from reading your articles, but um, there was a mass arrest in Berlin of 170 people for carrying flags and kefias during, during a flash mob. Um this was this was last year or something. This, this was, was I think last before year. Before October seventh, yeah. they were doing mass arrests of pro-Palestinian protesters. That's crazy to me. That's yeah, so so wrong. Uh, um, and uh, since October seventh, German police raided fifty-four properties because of anti-Israel Islamism, and they've opened an investigation into the Islamic Center Hamburg. Um, which is a really respected institution. Um, there have been 800 security raids targeting Palestinians, religious centers, and doctors even. Um, and yeah, like you said, they classified Israel's national security as their reason of state, which that's that's so wild to me. It's so, so messed up. It's like the whole idea of never again is completely lost on not only Israel, but Germany as well. Like it, that just keeps... It makes me want to smash my head up against a wall. It's like, why is that, did you not learn anything from all the horrors? Like, ugh. but I am. Um, yeah, I guess in that vein, I'm wondering if you could share some of the insight you've gained into the German psyche and what you've referred to as their memory culture. Why do you think Germany continues to support Israel's genocide while turning its police against Palestinians? Yeah, I mean, just to clarify, also, uh, memory culture is not something I coined at all. There's mm-hmm. a lot of academics here that have have uh, um, you know did so much more research into this. Um, but you know, obviously, because of the nature of being a journalist, it's it's taking 
you know, knowledge that isn't widely known and trying to make it widely known. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my understanding is from, you know, colleagues and people that I, I respect in Palestinian academics that have been censored within their own institutions mm-hmm. that have given me also language to talk about it as well. Amazing. But, um, but something, uh, but again, like going, going back to this, the the issue of the Palestinians for Germany, it, it creates a perfect solution for them, right? Before October 7, they created the perfect solution for them because what they can do is take, you know, take a country that is saying that it's the voice of Jewish people around the world, right? And, um, I'll let them do whatever they want and support them however we can. And we are now exalted from all accusations of anti-Semitism, from our anti-Semitic past, from the Holocaust, from our role, um, you know, mm-hmm. role of persecuting and murdering 6 million Jews. Um, yeah. We won't be known for that anymore because we've learned from our past. We recognize Israel's right to exist and we do everything in our power to subdue anyone who says otherwise. And in this case, it's the Palestinian people. Um, and by the way, the Palestinian diaspora is the biggest in, in, in Germany. So like it's, it's the biggest Palestinian diaspora outside of the Middle East and South America. Yeah. So, so, um, again, like it's, it's taking direct, um, Israeli propaganda, making it your, making it your own laws. And so Germany has essentially become an extension of Israeli occupation and apartheid. And, and, and through this extension has implemented, um, you know, very repressive and is trying to implement more repressive laws, um, subduing the Palestinian and pro-Palestinian populations. Um, But they're panicking. I think I want to also mention that I think Germany is panicking because more and more young people are seeing how horrific this is. There are protests every single weekend in Germany, all across the country. Um, And, you know, within universities, there are, there are students who are on strike like every Wednesday, such as the case in Berlin, um, specifically calling for a ceasefire and for their institutions to recognize Palestinian right to self-determination. And, and it's in among the young people, it's become, um, you know, very unifying, but the problem is, and why Germany is so unique is that there is no Israel lobby in the traditional sense as it is in the United States, there's no APAC, there's no, um, you know, millions of money going into universities and, and trying to create student groups to spy and, and, um, you know, quiet down students or academics. No, in Germany, we have the media who does that. We have politicians who do that. We have, um, you know, actual people within positions of power who will willingly do that, um, you know, just for the sake of it. Um, the reason why we've had the targeting of so many pro-Palestinian journalists or uh, activists or students within Germany is because, um, you know, these local politicians have taken it upon themselves to demonize and attack them um, for political points to seem as a good German citizen. Um, we've had anti-Semitism commissioners who are not Jewish attack anti-Zionist Jews and call them anti-Semitic and call them, um, you know, wow. ex- ex- you know, extremely and, and you know, insults essentially. Uh you know, because they're against the state of Israel. 
And so the Holocaust is not even seen as something that Jewish people in Germany can reflect on and can, um, you know, ask the German you know, state to, to, to also reflect on and critique. And no, it's, it's seen as something entirely, entirely German, right. To the point where if a Jewish person says, Hey, um, you know, like you guys killed so many of my family and I still disagree with how Israel treats Palestinians. Um, they will say, Mm. no, you're wrong. Like that's, that's the entitlement that Germany has right now. Um, and so many anti-Zionist uh, Jewish friends of mine um, have been attacked by police, have been arrested um, for carrying signs that say stop the genocide. I mean, yeah. in Berlin, anti-Zionist Jews, anti-Zionist Israelis would carry stop the genocide as a sign and get detained and arrested for it. That's wow. that's the situation we have wow. here. Yeah. Um, and it's all in the name of, of uh, you know, tackling anti-Semitism. Yeah. And in the process, they become anti, they, they continue the anti-Semitism, directing it towards both Jewish people, directing, you know, other racism towards the Palestinians there. It's, yeah. I don't know, like, how that country got to that place, but uh, (sighs) it, it is, yeah, it just baffles my mind that, that there could be such a lack of reflection on the reality right now and what they are condoning and supporting and who they are hurting with this, but, but thank you so much for using your voice so powerfully in so many incredible articles to talk about this. I, it really opened my mind. I was not aware of the extent of the situation in Germany and how, um, the kind of German post Holocaust narrative had played into all of this. So, um, it's incredibly illuminating and mind blowing. So in October, you wrote an incredible piece titled A Letter to My Gazan Palestinian Son. In it, you wrote, being from Gaza means you know that justice is the most important human pursuit a person can have. Even if they dehumanize you like they do to all other black and brown folks, being from Gaza means you know that all walls and empires fall eventually. Our resilience is stronger than their hatred. In this incredibly dark moment, can you share your thoughts about Palestinian resilience and your hopes for the future? I think, you know, just witnessing the, the absolute resilience of the Palestinian people, of course, you know, I sometimes I don't want to romanticize it because, um, of course, they're depressed, they're deprived, they're, mm. um, you know, in such horrific situations. But still, you know, speaking just to my uncle-in-law yesterday and, and you know, after losing um, so many of his children and grandchildren, mm. it just, you know, of course, part of it is, is faith and part of it is, is understanding that sometimes Palestinians will only get divine justice. But there's also another part of it. I mean, why mm. are we so tied to our liberation is because we know that justice is the most important human pursuit people can have, just as I wrote. Um, And Mm -hmm. never forgetting that even if I'm living in the diaspora, um, living, you know, in a, in in a Western country, um, wanting my son to understand that, that um, it is only because of the resilience of the Palestinian people. Do we keep on protesting? Do we keep on fighting? Do we keep on um, attempting to rebuild? And so, 
everything you'll hear is in Arabic. We say, you know, Allah bi'awud, which is, you know, uh, oh, it's hard to translate. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but but the idea the idea is that you will rebuild. It will mm. your your money will come back. Your mm-hmm. life, you know, eventually will come back. Um, I, you know, I keep hearing stories of, of how our families lived in tents after the Nakba and um, they eventually built buildings on top of those tents, you know, yeah. which is the case in many refugee camps in Gaza. Those were tents and wow. the refugee camps, they were tents and then they became buildings and then and they became even larger buildings and they became stores and, and places of leisure and comfort. And it was all done by Palestinian hands and all built by Palestinian people and making the best of what they had. Um, and so many of them realize um, we might be living in tents once again, but yeah. um, we'll build on top of them if we have to. Yeah. yeah. And it makes me think of the calls by, I forget what, what Israeli official that said, you know, I want to see everyone, like a city of tents, everybody living in tents, and and then thinking about the fact that Palestinians have had to live through this before. Many of them have had to already go through this uh, after being refugees multiple times because of this expansionist occupation. Um, so it's it's just beautiful to hear that there is still that desire to rebuild there's still that desire to stay rooted in in Gaza in in Palestine and not let go of that love for the land for the place for the people for the culture um that that is just so incredible to me so powerful to me to see people even in the midst of all of this want to remain and want to rebuild it's it's one of the most beautiful things i've ever witnessed so thank you for sharing your thoughts about that. That that was that was amazing. Well, thank you so much for for having me also and and um, all your work. It's it's incredibly important. Oh, I appreciate that so much. <laughs> I um I want to just uh, give you the opportunity to give any calls to action if there are things coming up um, that people should know about. If there are um, you know, the, your sub stack that people should definitely check out and start reading your work. <laughs> You're yeah, too modest. They don't have to do that. They don't they, have to do that. Go do that. Everyone do it. <laughs> you will not regret it. <laughs> but yeah, is there um, anything else that you think folks should know? I, you know, I really I, go to your local protests, truly. Yeah. I mean, the one thing, um, you know, my, my husband told me yesterday because a lot of his you know friends want to come and usually after, you know, a family member dies, you, you visit someone's house, you have like almost an, an open house where people mm. are able to come in and, and give sweets and, and, mm. and just comfort you. But, um, you know, during war, when so many people are being killed, um, he, he told me that he would rather people just go to protests and, and demand mm-hmm. a ceasefire and for us to be able to mourn effectively after all this ends. Um, and so, and so that's, I guess that would be my only call to action is just keep, keep going, keep posting, keep um, applying pressure um, wherever you are, because, you know, you can apply a pressure wherever you are mm-hmm. um, and just hope that this ends soon. So we could, mourn effectively and um yeah yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that really ties back into the work that you've been doing forever since you've been a teenager and everything. I I appreciate that you have, you got in the fight early and you are not afraid to continue it, even with everything that is happening right now to the Palestinian people um, in Palestine, in Gaza, um, and everything that's happening in Germany to the Palestinian people. The fact that you keep writing, you keep speaking, you keep, you know, using your voice for to change this narrative, to change, to open people's minds. It's really, really inspiring and really, really powerful. And I'm thank you so much. Yeah, I deeply appreciate you. <laughs> oh, of course, thank you so much for for having me and uh, speaking with me today too. I also really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Um, we can do it again someday in much, much better circumstances. <laughs> I would, I would very much like that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, cheers and solidarity and so much love to you. Hey, everyone. Thank you all for tuning into this episode. If you value the work that we're doing, we would deeply appreciate your support. This project involves a huge amount of research, networking, content creation, and editing. You can lend a hand by giving us a rating and writing a review, or you can contribute financially by signing up on Patreon. To all of our existing patrons, thank you so goddamn much. Your support makes a huge difference for this anti-capitalist project. Much love to you all. Cheers and solidarity.